Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. A few years ago, I read a book called Born to Run. You read this book? I think the second version is out now. I got an inside look in reading this book in the world of ultra marathoning. So races of 50 or 100 or sometimes even more miles. And there's this moment that I learned about with, the, in, with these ultra endurance runners. There's this moment that they all dread and it's called hitting the wall. Or bonking out of the race. And this is when everything that was running so smooth and so well, just a few minutes, even a few miles ago, just shuts down. Well, if walking with Jesus is an ultramarathon, and I think it is, we are exploring in this sermon series our walk through the ancient sermon of Hebrews. We are exploring what it looks like to stay in the race when you have hit the wall. We're talking about ultra-endurance faith. Which I think is one of the most important things we can talk about today. A.J. Swoboda, he recently wrote an excellent book, I think, called After Doubt. He realized there's lots and lots and lots of books about following Jesus after faith. After new faith, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? But that is like writing a book on how to run an ultramarathon race in the first few months. How do you follow Jesus after that? How do you follow Jesus when you've hit the wall? When everything that was just so smooth in your life suddenly isn't working anymore. When everything is shutting down. When all of your systems, lights are flashing. And so he asks, is it possible to question our faith without losing it? And I would add, is it possible to wrestle with our faith without losing it? Is it possible to hit the wall in our faith without losing it? And I think it is, but more importantly, so does the author of Hebrews. And I say the author of Hebrews, but I can also say the preacher of Hebrews because Hebrews is an ancient sermon. It's a plea. It's not just a heady exhortation. It is a heartfelt exhortation to do one thing, to keep moving in the same direction. And that direction is toward the face of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're running this morning. It doesn't matter if you're walking this morning. It doesn't matter if you're crawling this morning. The reason we're walking through Hebrews as a church is so that you just keep moving in the same direction. But this preacher doesn't just say keep walking. This preacher actually paints a picture of the beauty of Jesus. See, the only way we will keep moving toward Jesus is if we are captivated by His beauty. Or if we are in a community that is captivated by 
His beauty. When we don't sense His beauty ourselves, we stay embedded in a community that does sense His beauty. And perhaps just like in an ultramarathon, we keep walking in the same direction as our fellow runners. The author of Hebrews says, do not cease meeting with one another. There's grace in that. And that's my prayer for you this morning, that you would be captivated and therefore kept by the beauty of Jesus. Again, whether you're pacing this morning, you're right on pace, and you're feeling great, or your legs right now are starting to go numb, or maybe they already have. Wherever you are, let's keep moving towards Jesus. This morning I want to look with you at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, and we'll look till verse 10. If you have your own Bibles, I would invite you to open to that, Hebrews 2, verse 5. We also have these scripture journals that are near the front door. They have the, the whole text of Hebrews with some journaling lines to the right of them that you can have and just keep for yourself throughout this sermon series, Bring on Sunday. Help us keep connected to the text. I'll read it, and then you can follow along as I read, and then we'll pray together before we begin. This is God's Word. Verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? He made him a little, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. Lord, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And Lord, we just for a moment sit in silence before your word. We ask that you make our hearts receptive to what you would say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, my favorite function on my iPhone is the silent switch. Anyone else? <laughs> a little switch on the side of the phone that makes everything silent. I say this because my least favorite function on my iPhone is the instant notifications. I can admit that, that it's helpful to be instantly notified, whether it's a text or something else. Years ago, though, I actually changed my ringtones into something less alarming, we'll say, than the default alarm for an instant notification. 
Because every time I heard this alarm go off, every time someone texted me, I don't know if, you, if I'm alone in this, but my heart rate would go up. Is that true of you guys, or am I totally alone on this? My heart rate would go up. Like numerous times throughout the day, when someone, even just like my wife, saying, I love you, you know, that would make my heart rate go up. I'd, I'd turn into like a lizard who's afraid because I just got a notification out of nowhere. Sounds like an alarm, so I wanted to make it not sound like an alarm. And if I'm honest, it wasn't the sound that unsettled me, but it was the interruption. It was the interruption itself. And I don't think anybody loves interruption. And that's because we were designed by God to have the dignity of agency in this life. Now, way too often we need that need for agency gets twisted into a bad thing so that we idolize control in our life. We resent or we even forget that God is on the throne. And so we organize our lives in such a way where our control, our agency over the domain that we are given becomes everything. And so we can twist this God-given dignity of agency into something that is harmful. And in rebellion against God's sovereignty. But sometimes this longing for agency is just human. It's built into our wiring as an image bearer of God to have the dignity of agency in this life. It's that satisfied feeling that we get like during and after a project. Something as small as cleaning your house. Something as small as mowing your yard, or as big as finishing your dissertation, or building out your garage, or when a relationship is going better now because of all that hard work where you exercise your agency in such a way as to bring life. The Hebrew scriptures have a word for this, shalom. Shalom is peace, but it's not just ceasefire. It's a communal state, a relational state of flourishing, of justice, of goodness, of beauty. It's where agency is not abused, but exercised in love of God ways and love of neighbor ways. When we exercise our agency the way that a good farmer tends their field. Being attentive. Using influence for growth. In fact, God wants us to celebrate this godly agency in his hymn book called the Book of Psalms. Psalm 8 says this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for? For him, talking about all of humanity here. Yet you have made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned humanity with glory and honor. You have given humanity dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This is a worship song to the Lord which celebrates God's generosity 
in giving humanity such an honored place in His creation. Glory and honor, verse 5, to humans. Just a little lower than angels themselves. Humanity, God's image bearers. This is the dignity of agency, isn't it? Well, I don't know about you, but life doesn't always feel this way. Life often feels like chaos. Toxic shame seems to be the order of the day, not glory and honor. Verse 5. Too often I twist my God-given agency into ungodly control. So much so that a text message can knock me off my wrist. And sometimes that agency that I have feels stripped. We feel under the wave of other people's agency, not surfing over it, not growing because of it, not flourishing because of it. If that's true of you, if that's true of me, if that's true of us together, I want us to consider for a moment the original congregation in Rome, to which Hebrews is addressing. We know from history books that congregations like this suffered abuse from those with power. The Roman Empire was not a friendly place for Jesus' people. We know from the text of Hebrews that they endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Following Jesus certainly didn't feel honorable and glorious when you're being plundered. They suffered a daily loss of agency in their own life. Such that New Testament scholar Ben Witherington says that Psalm 8, which they knew well as Jewish Jesus followers, would ring hollow to their ears, to their experience. It could even feel mocking, we would expect, to their experience. See, the truth is, that what we see in front of us and what we experience in our daily life does not always line up with Psalm 8's promise. Glory and honor. Instead, we see chaos. We see injustice. We see injury. We experience cancer. We experience oppression. We experience depression. Discouragement. All of those things. But the preacher does not ignore Psalm 8. Hebrews, as we just read, preaches on some it. How is that possible? And why, why does this happen? Well, it's because the preacher sees Jesus in all of Scripture. Like Sally Lloyd-Jones says, all of the Bible whispers his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. And Psalm 8 doesn't whisper the name of Jesus. It actually shouts the name of Jesus. You see, Hebrews, as we've already seen teaches us that Jesus is fully God and also fully human. He is, as Paul puts it in another book, the second Adam, the true and perfect human, who came to fulfill humanity's mission and also Israel's mission perfectly 
In other words, as it's been said, he lived the life that we have all been summoned by God to live ourselves. Jesus lived that life of mission perfectly and holistically. There's a reason why everybody, no matter where they are in the Gospels, are attracted to Jesus except the demons. Everyone is attracted to Jesus because he is fulfilling the beauty and the truth of what God designed when he made image bearers. The dignity that is an image bearer, we see in full glory and all of its righteousness in the person of Jesus, the perfect Son of Man. You see, what Jesus does actually is takes that phrase, Son of Man, which was a catch-all for all of humanity. And Jesus capitalizes the S and capitalizes the M and becomes the Son of Man, the perfect one, the sinless one. So this means when Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, which is about the Son of Man, which is about all of humanity, it is okay, no, it's even necessary to plug in the name Jesus. Verse 9 actually says, but we see Jesus. And so I'm going to read this text again. I'm going to read Psalm 8 as it's quoted, but I will insert the name of Jesus. For it was not, verse 5, to angels that God subjected the world to come, for which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, as some say, what is humanity that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, insert Jesus, that you care for him. You made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Jesus with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under Jesus' feet. Continuing verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside Jesus' control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. What do we see? But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And by the way, that's the first time the name of Jesus is mentioned in the sermon called Hebrews. Namely, Jesus. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Read this way, Psalm 8 invites us to see Jesus in three different chapters of his life. I'll put it this way. In the Bethlehem manger, his incarnation, on a Roman torture device, his crucifixion, and at a heavenly coronation ceremony, his ascension. It's through these events that God brings us to glory and transforms this psalm into good news, even if we feel like life is out of control right now. If honor and glory are not the words that we would pick to describe our life right now, this is good news. And that's because of what verse 10 says. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, or the, it says here, the founder, or the better word here would be trailblazer of their salvation, perfect through suffering. We experience glory and honor, friends, because Jesus fulfills the song truly, as fully God and fully human. His life and death and his ascension blaze a trail for us to glory. Let's take a look at each just briefly this morning. Despite what our eyes tell us, 
We are on a trail to glory because of Jesus' incarnation. And so if you just cast your eyes again at verses 6, 7, and then again at 9, we see this. What is humanity that you are mindful of Him? What is the Son of Man that you care for Him? And again, humans are the reference in Psalm 8. But Hebrews tells us that in the incarnation, God became man so that Jesus became the representative human in Psalm 8. He is the only person to live the life that humanity was charged to live. A life marked by love of God. A life marked by love of neighbor. A a life marked by godly agency and rule. A life that used his agency for the sake of others. Not to harm. His power. And so what we see in Psalm 8 is this remarkable thing. The preacher of Hebrews is telling us that when we see this mission, this calling of humanity, it's Jesus who comes in as fully God. To fulfill it perfectly. The late pastor Tim Keller, he liked to talk about Dorothy Sayers' Peter Whimsey novels. And Whimsey was apparently a very lonely man, a detective sort. And so Sayers introduced a character named Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane was a graduate of Oxford, just like Sayers herself. And so according to Keller, and I'm quoting, Sayers put herself into her own stories. She looked into the world that she had created and fell in love with the chief character, Peter Whimsey. And she wrote herself into the story so that she could heal him. That's the heart of God. God sees us in our brokenness. He sees us in all the ways in which we aren't exercising the agency, the way that God made it. He sees all the ways that we've been harmed by others doing that as well. And he decides to enter into his own story. The eternal Son of God lowers himself. He became lower than the angels, this text says. The worship songwriter, Matt Meyer, he gets at this with a song, Christ is lower still. I love these lines. Let the King descend. Living Word made flesh. Lift this heavy heart to your throne. In his wings, the king's wings, I find room for all of mine. When from grace I fell, Christ was lowered still. We are on a trail to glory because the Son of God lowered himself. No matter how low you are, no matter how low you feel this morning, Christ is lowered still. Despite what our eyes tell us, we're also on a trail of glory because of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus not only rescues us in his flesh, but he rescues us on his cross. Look again at verse 9. Verse 9 says, We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Did you catch that? Jesus is crowned with glory and honor not in spite of his death, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then in verse 10, we read that Jesus gives us the same glory and honor through his suffering. Jesus tasted death for everyone by grace. The perfect, sinless, eternal one did not need to taste death. But he did it as a gift. And he knew that the only way that we can experience The honor and glory that we were made for is if he dies with and for us. He dies with us. He knows what death feels like. 
have a friend who takes deep, deep consolation in this truth. That the Lord knows what death feels like. Fleming Rutledge writes this. By becoming one of the poor who was deprived of his rights, by dying as one of those robbed of justice, God's Son submitted to the utmost extremity of humiliation, entering into total solidarity with those who are alive. He died with us. He tasted death by grace. He didn't have to. But he didn't just die with us, he died for us. This is a for-death we read of in Hebrews. Not a pointless death, not even an inspiring death, but a for-death. His cross was a death for us. He died because that is the only way to reverse what author C.S. Lewis has called the deep magic of sin and death that holds sway over this world. The sinless eternal one tasted death. He himself tasted death. He took on death on the cross. And this takes away the penalty of death that our sin deserves. Jesus was a representative of all of humanity. Therefore, his death for all who trust in him is our death. Therefore, the penalty of our sin, the death that sin deserves, has been dealt with once and for all. And that takes away the power of death over us. Later we're going to read how we're all afraid of death. And for some reason Jesus takes on death by grace. Which therefore not only takes care of the penalty of death. But it's power over us too. I have seen a loved one die. And it is impossible to forget. Because in that moment. You see a human without any control. And it strikes me that birth and death is humanity at its most vulnerable. But friends, the eternal Son of God went through that. With us and for us is Jesus. Despite what your eyes tell us, we are on a trail of glory because of Jesus' crucifixion. He blazes a trail of glory by dying with and by dying for us. He slays the final enemy, death and sin and Satan, by dying. Death, thou art dead. I want to talk about the ascension now. Because despite what our eyes tell us, we are on a trail of glory because of the ascension of Jesus. In this passage, we witness a surprising coronation ceremony. I don't know if you're like really into the coronation ceremonies of England. Anybody out there? I know you exist. Uh, you watch these things. Um, I'm intrigued by them too, so I'm with you. A crowning ceremony is pretty magnificent. It's a pretty amazing thing. But what we see in this text is surprising because it is a crowning ceremony. It's just not what we would expect, especially if we're talking about the God who created all things. Verse 9, we see that Jesus was crowned. There's that word crowned with glory and honor. How and why? Because of the suffering of God. Jesus is crowned with glory. And Jesus brings all who trust in him to glory. Because of, not in spite of, his suffering and his death. His cross is 
his enthronement. So the, the beloved disciple John actually says when Jesus is raised up, he's referring to two things. He's saying the cross is actually lifted up and we see the horror of the crucifixion. But yet in the same moment, Jesus is raised up as king. And we see that full display in his ascension. When he fulfills the ancient prophecy in Daniel and he ascends to, the, to his father's right hand. And in so doing, he sits down as ruler of all. That is his enthronement. And what it means for us is that if we've been crucified with Christ, we will also be raised with Christ, which means we'll also share in his rule. One of the most perplexing passages of Paul in my mind is whenever he talks about the fact that we sit in the heavenlies with Jesus. I'm like, what does that mean? What it means is that we are in a mysterious way sitting with the ascended and crowned Jesus right now. It may not be our experience, but it is exactly where you are right now in Christ. Our original created agency and dignity, the crowns that we were given upon our creation, have been restored by the ascension of Jesus. And that's who you most truly are this morning. You are crowned with Jesus. And that means whatever messages of toxic shame you've been given, whatever doubts that we wrestle with, you need to hear this morning that you are in Christ. Which means that He lived for you, yes. He died for you, yes. But He ascended for you as well. I love this detail from Scott Ben Witherington. He sees language in this passage that would have triggered the original audience who lived in Rome. So this preacher is using language usually reserved for the Roman emperor. But as William puts it, Jesus, not the emperor, is the true Pontifex Maximus. The title for emperor. Only he has offered the perfect sacrifice. See, the emperor would offer sacrifices. But only Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And only he has brought not only himself, but also many others to true glory and everlasting salvation. Jesus is a greater hero and founder of a group of people than was Romulus, the founder of Rome. More pious than any other known priest, a more powerful liberator and benefactor than the emperor. Amen. Jesus is the perfect leader. perfect ruler who rules with life-giving service and surprising self-sacrifice. Whose rule not only forgives our sins but promises and restores to us glory and honor when he comes to make all things new. So yes, things may not look good right now, but as surely as Jesus was born, as surely as Jesus was crucified, and as surely as Jesus was raised and ascended, so will we also one. We cannot see our own glory, maybe today. But we can see Jesus' glory, and that is enough. And that's the message of Hebrews. It allows us to put one foot in the same direction. Because as goes Jesus, so goes his people. In verse 10, we read that Jesus is the founder of their salvation. The founder. This word, as I mentioned earlier, 
is probably better translated pioneer or trailblazer. I once went backpacking in the backcountry of the High Sierras, and, and high, and High Sierras means high altitude. And for us, that meant flat snowfields that covered all of the well-trod trails that you usually would see. But there were boot trails in the snow. And I cannot tell you how grateful I was for the trailblazers that were ahead of us, who gave me their boot tracks to follow who did the hard work of charting the safest path forward. All I had to do was put one foot down in front of the other. I, honestly, I was just looking at the footprint in front of me. I was just putting it down, and then the next one, putting it down, and the next one. I was taking it one step at a time. Everything else was too overwhelming. Well, I want to say this is half of what Jesus did for you as trailblazer of your salvation. He didn't just get crowned in glory as an example. Hey, you can do this too. But he actually finished faithfully for you. In Christ, your life is in Christ. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His ascension is your ascension. You are seated in the heavenlies. When Jesus finished the race, it's as if you finished the race with him. Do you realize that? It's as if you were there too. And you were. And so we just put one foot in front of the other to that finish. Because that's who we really are. Friends, I want to ask to close where you are feeling frustrated in life right now. Where is the friction, the soulmate friction? When you read soulmate and you see the glory and honor that is a life of dignity, of agency, of, of that shalomic life where you're actually experiencing relational flourishing, flourishing in your job and, and the things that God has given you, like where are you feeling the friction? Where is that not true of your experience? What circumstances in your life, perhaps in your thought life or in your emotional life, does Psalm 8 seem to mock? I want you to hold on to those thoughts and not get rid of them. Instead, take them to the Lord this morning. And as you do so, I want you to hear the Lord say, this is Jesus fulfilling Psalm 8 for you as well. And to borrow from an image from Brene Brown, if you feel like life is, if your life is basically in a hole, Jesus doesn't just look down from the top of the hole and say, man, I'm sorry, I see you. What Jesus does and what we see declared to us in this text this morning is that Jesus goes down into the hole with you. He doesn't just sit with you. He goes below you. He serves you and he brings you out. He is the pioneer of salvation. He's the trailblazer of salvation. He goes before you. He capitalizes the S and he capitalizes the N in Son of Man. So that this psalm of praise, which can become a psalm of lament for us, becomes a praise psalm again. So Jesus... We bring our burdens to you, pioneer of our salvation. Who was born into this beautiful but broken world that you created. Who tasted death by grace with us and for us. And he restored our crown glory with your ascension. Thank you, Lord, that we are wrapped up in that story.
And that that is what you give us hope this morning. In Jesus' name. Confession of faith is from the Apostles' Creed this morning, and I can invite you to recite this creed with us. If this is not where you are, if you're just exploring Christianity, we don't want you to feel like you have to say these, but maybe as you hear it being said around you, consider what it would look like to confess these words. Together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. In a moment, we have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table, and if following Jesus as an ultramarathon, we can understand the table as a water station, where you can receive water or food for what's ahead. And we've talked about the table that way before, but also I want you to consider the table as something else. As you walk forward and there's somebody in front of you and there's somebody behind you, there is a momentum of the faithful that keeps us. And so we can come to this table with mustard seed faith, saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And there is a, there is a, a God-designed momentum that happens when, when, the, when the faithful come to the table. And every person coming to the table this morning, myself included, are all kinds of different places. But we have mustard seed faith. It's not the size or strength of our faith that saves us or that invites us to this table. It's just the simple fact that we're putting one foot in front of the other toward Jesus. And if you have made that step, then this table is for you. Again, if you haven't, it wouldn't make sense to come to the table. But we would explore, we would want you to explore what that could look like. We would love to talk more about that. You'll see in your worship folder these words from 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Lord, we come to your table this morning saying, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm walking, but I'm weary. Would you by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, allow us to experience our union with you and therefore with each other? at this table. It's in your name for this. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.